0: means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there.
1: This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive
2: Thoughts. God hath made of one blood all nations that dwell upon the face of the earth. The Samaritan felt that touch of nature, which makes all men kin. And he bent over the stranger and relieved his pains.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We are going to the year 1877 to hear a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. This episode is kind of a fun one. When possible, we like to try to break out of our mold and do like an on location. Get out. We, we, want, we did this with Dale Moody, where we went to the spot where Dale Moody preached his last sermon. Uh, in this episode, there is a museum. Uh, called the Spurgeon Center that houses it's it's the largest collection of Spurgeon writings, artifacts, everything that is Spurgeon related, uh, and we got a chance to sit down with the director of the Spurgeon Center, Dr. Cheng, and pick his brain, just talk to him. What 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 are he, I mean this 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 is a guy whose job is to know Spurgeon exceptionally better than Troy or I do. <laughs> yes, and we are thankful that he offered. Uh, to sit down with us and to allow us to interview him with that. And also, Dr. Chang is going to be reading uh, today's Spurgeon sermon. We normally have uh, Dave Wakefield read our Spurgeon sermons, and he does a great job. But we're going to break a little bit from that mold today to have Dr. Chang read that from the Spurgeon Center itself in the very room that Spurgeon's own pulpit his literal pulpit that he preached from. We wanted to have him like preach it from the pulpit itself, <laughs> but you can't actually You can preach, see it. You can, you can see but it. it's got like a surrounding around
1: it, so right, we wouldn't right. have been able to do that. So before we did that, we got to interview him and ask him a few questions. And there, there's so many different angles. And I asked him, I was like, what's the best way to kind of, what's something we can talk about with Charles Spurgeon? Because there's so many different ways. If you haven't listened to our earlier Spurgeon episodes, Go ahead and download those now, because he has a rich, uh, just backstory of different things that happens. And we, we've we asked the question, is he rightfully called the Prince of Preachers, and kind of ran through the statistics of what kind of a man he was, and especially with sermons. We've done a little bit of his conversion story, but there's just so much to him in uh, his depression, too. We interviewed uh, a former director of the Spurgeon Center on his depression. But in this episode, when I asked Dr. Chang, I was thinking, what are we going to kind of talk about here? What, what are you thinking? He sent this sermon, The Good Samaritan. And he said, this sermon is kind of about Charles Spurgeon's heart for the poor. And he then just, he answered a lot of questions about Charles Spurgeon and the way he took care of those who were poor, impoverished, and struggling in London during the Industrial Revolution, a very hard time to be in London. I've mentioned this quote on the show before, but the average age life expectancy in London at that time was 17. So you did not live a long time, it was a very hard time, and Spurgeon was not unaware of that plight. He really was reaching out, trying to help people through that. And so we listen to these questions and hear his heart for others. And you can see this wasn't just a guy who was, you know, a big brain, very smart. And it wasn't just a guy who had, you know, a lot of theological knowledge or a really good mouth. He could speak just extremely well. He could do those things. And he was all those things. But he was also a man who was the hands and feet of God right there in London, taking care of people. Some of the answers, I don't want to spoil them for you. you. got to listen to Dr. Chang explain them. But some of the things he says and mentions, I was like, wow, that is... I I hope, I know I never will, but I would love to have a reputation like that. I would love for 150 years ago, people to be saying the things they said about Spurgeon and his love for the poor about me. I think that every Christian would.
3: Yeah, we had a lot of, uh, not only... Uh, audio from this interview, but we, we filmed it. We did a video of it as well, and that'll be on our social media, primarily on our Facebook page, Revive Studios Facebook page. So if you want, if you like what you're hearing during this interview and you want to see more, we have, uh, I, I feel like, at least a half an hour of content where he speaks through different topics and uh, some incredible things. There's a moment that you'll hear. on. We, we're going to have to cut it down for this uh, introduction, so there's not going to be the full 30 minutes in this episode, but We wanted to include a segment where, and I I don't want to spoil it too much, but Dr. Chain talks about a friend of Spurgeon's, and he reads an excerpt from this man's journal, his autobiography, where a friend of Spurgeon writes down an account of how Spurgeon cared for an orphaned child that was dying and Ugh. it's one of the most moving beautiful excerpts it, it, of it was difficult to keep a dry eye in the room right. when we were doing the recording let's just say it was it was a moving powerful moment right it's great so without further ado we're gonna jump into our our interview there at the Spurgeon Center and then followed up by uh, the preaching of the sermon itself
2: have the privilege here of housing uh, Spurgeon's personal kind of pastoral library. So this beautiful space all around us uh, in these bookshelves uh, are about 6,000 volumes of books that Charles Spurgeon owned. Uh, They are works of theology, works of Bible commentary, uh, works having to do with pastoral ministry and church hymnody, uh, and then also works of general interest like like different religious magazines, uh, books of geography, and and animal husbandry, uh, and horticulture, I mean, just all kind of this sort of uh, expression of all that Spurgeon uh, had an interest in. Having his personal library here uh, provides an opportunity for some uh, kind of scholarship to be done on Spurgeon, uh, his thought, his theology. Uh, this space is half sort of a research library, you know, for, us, for people to investigate the, the life and thought of Spurgeon, uh, but it's also half sort of a museum, uh, as we also contain many artifacts from Spurgeon's life, and, and we use the space to tell the story of Spurgeon's life and ministry uh, there in the 19th century. Um, we, we really hope that this space uh, becomes something that we, we use to not only kind of hold up Spurgeon as a model for faithfulness, for Christian faithfulness, but also as a lens through which we can look through Spurgeon uh, to see Christ. Uh, as we study his works and all of his teachings about the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching was definitely the kind of his main ministry, no doubt about it, but uh, there, there are also many other aspects of his ministry. You know, you can talk about him as a pe- church pastor, him as a, a college president. I think what I wanted us to highlight for this episode is just Spurgeon as a philanthropist. Uh, you know, 19th century London was a miserable place to live in many ways, you know, that over the course of that century, the, the city's population uh, increased from something like 1 million to over 7 million. Uh, and uh, due to industrialization, uh, people were flocking to the city. And if you've ever read Dickens, you have an idea of kind of the, the, the terrible social conditions, the overcrowding, the poverty, uh, the unsanitary conditions. Uh, you know, a, a Spurgeon, um looked around as he saw the poor in a city. His heart broke. Uh, He was deeply concerned. And out of his church, uh, in response, uh, he organized something like 60-plus charitable organizations uh, from from schools for the poor uh, to almshouses uh, to an orphanage uh, to to help with the the dire needs all around him. You know, there are so many funny stories surrounding him and his care for the poor. Uh, There's one account of how the, the Metropolitan Police at one point came across a little handbook for professional beggars. Uh, and that handbook contained a list of all the soft targets for, for uh, panhandling there in the city. And at the top of the list was Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> because, you know, he, he, again, he, I think, almost to the point of just even, some might say, being naive. I mean, he had such a heart for, for the suffering all around him uh, that, that he felt like he had to do something about it. His work with the orphanage, helped people to hear him as a preacher differently. You know, uh, this powerful preacher preaching before vast audiences uh, who who preached realities of, of hell and sin and, and condemnation and the need for the cross of Christ and repentance and faith, uh, those things can seem very harsh and very kind of awe-inspiring, uh, but then when you hear that Charles Spurgeon was also uh, kind of, he, that he also had an orphanage and he cared for poor children, uh, I think that softened the picture, you know, that helped, them to see, helped people to see him uh, as someone who was more personable. Um, yeah, if you don't mind, I want to read, actually, an account from a friend of Spurgeon's. Uh, his name was John B. Googe. Uh, And he was a fellow sort of admirer of Spurgeon. Um, And he writes in his kind of biography uh, the account of a time when he went with Spurgeon to see the orphanage. So I'd love to read that account for you, which I think that kind of summarizes what I'm talking about. Um, I'm going to read kind of different excerpts here. He writes this. A beautiful day it was for London as we rode together chatting all the way. The the history of the orphanage is intensely interesting. The commencement was a sum of 20,000 pounds to Mr. Spurgeon from a lady to commence an orphanage for fatherless boys. Uh, When we entered the grounds, the boys set up a shout of joy at the sight of their benefactor. Uh, If you've read Dickens, uh, the idea of a benefactor is a powerful idea, isn't it? Uh, I asked him, what are the requirements for admission? He said, utter destitution, nothing denominational. We have more of the Church of England than of the Baptists. We have Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists, all all sorts. After the boys had gone through their gymnastic exercises and military drill, I spoke a few words to them. Mr. Spurgeon was like a great boy among boys. He said, there are 240 boys. Only think, how many pence are there in a shilling? Twelve. Right. How many shillings in a pound? Twenty. Right. Twelve times twenty. How many? Two hundred and forty. Well, that's a penny apiece for each boy. Here, Mr. Charlesworth, handing him a sovereign, give these boys a penny apiece. When a shrill, hearty hurrah was given, as Mr. Spurgeon turned away with a laugh of keen enjoyment. Will you go to the infirmary? We have an infirmary and a quarantine, for sometimes the poor creatures we take in need a good deal of purifying. We have one boy very ill with consumption. He cannot live and I wished to see him, for he would be disappointed if he knew I had been here and had not seen him. We went into the cool and sweet chamber, and there lay the boy. He was very much excited when he saw Mr. Spurgeon. The great preacher sat by his side, and I cannot describe the scene. Holding the boy's hand in his, he said, well, my dear, you have some precious promises in sight all around the room. Now, dear, you are going to die. And you are very tired lying here. And soon you will be free from all pain and you will rest. Nurse, did he rest last night? He coughed very much. Ah, my dear boy, it seems very hard for you to lie here all day in pain and cough all night. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Well, Jesus loves you. He bought you with his precious blood. And he knows what is best for you. It seems hard for you to lie here and listen to the shouts of the healthy boys outside at play. But soon Jesus will take you home, and then he will tell you the reason, and you will be so glad. Then laying his hand on the boy without the formality of kneeling, he said, O Jesus, Master, this dear child is reaching out his thin hand to find thine. Touch him, dear Savior, with thy loving warm clasp. Lift him as he passes the cold river. Let his feet be not chilled by the water of death take him home in thine own good time comfort and cherish him till that good time comes show him thyself as he lies here and let him see thee and know thee more and more as his loving savior after a moment's pause he said now dear is there anything you would like would you like a little canary in a cage to hear him sing in the morning nurse See that he has a canary tomorrow morning. Goodbye, my dear. You will see the Savior, perhaps, before I shall. I had seen Mr. Spurgeon holding by his power 6,500 persons in a breathless interest. I knew him as a great man universally esteemed and beloved. But as he sat by the bedside of a dying pauper child whom his beneficence had rescued, he was to me a greater and grander man than when swaying the mighty multitude at his will. You know, I love that account. Uh, You talked about what's the relationship between Spurgeon's orphanage work and him as a preacher. Uh, And I think for him, his work with the orphanage, uh, his care for the poor uh, adorned the preaching of the gospel, right? For those who knew that that was going on, uh, that made, his talk of the love of Christ that much more rich uh, and beautiful. Uh, and I think that's true for us today. I think for preachers who are, as far as people can tell, aloof and disconnected from, from the sufferings and the cares of, of people, uh, their preaching will seem distant. You know? But for, for those who know a preacher's kind of personal life and his warmth and his care for the needs of others, ah, uh, that, that, that will... Sort of enliven their preaching and make it that much more beautiful, uh, and I think that's important for preachers to be aware of. I think I would just encourage you as you as you listen to the sermon. You know, he, the context of this particular sermon, he's speaking on behalf of the hospitals in London, uh, and he's urging his people, th- his listeners, to to get involved with the care of of the poor and the the sick in the city. And, you know, even as you hear Spurgeon speak on these things in his day, uh, consider what would this look like in your own life, you know, as as you seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, certainly what people need most of all is the gospel, right? Uh, But I think as Spurgeon once said, how can they hear about the bread of life when their own bodies are are dying for need of physical bread, right? How can they hear about the robe of righteousness when their physical bodies are naked and unclothed, you know? And so uh, what are the the dire needs all around you um, that you can begin to slowly meet in your own way uh, in order that that might open the door for people hearing about the hope of the gospel? Do thou likewise. There are certain persons in the world who will not allow the preacher to speak upon anything but those doctrinal statements concerning the way of salvation, which are known as the gospel. If the preacher shall insist upon some virtue or practical grace, they straightway say that he was not preaching the gospel, that he became legal and was a mere moral teacher. We do not stand in any awe of such criticisms, for we clearly perceive that our Lord Jesus Christ himself would very frequently have come under it. Read the Sermon on the Mount and judge whether certain people would be content to hear the like of it preached to them on the Sabbath. They would condemn it as containing very little gospel and too much about good works. Our Lord was a great practical preacher. He frequently delivered addresses in which He made answer to questioners or gave direction to seekers or upbraided offenders, and He gave a prominence to practical truth, which, as some of His ministers, dare not imitate. Jesus tells us over and over again, the manner in which we are to live towards our fellow men, and he lays great stress upon the love which should shine throughout the Christian character. The story of the Good Samaritan, which is now before us, is a case in point, for our Lord is there explaining a point which arose out of the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The question is legal, and the answer is to the point. But let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. The law tells us what we ought to be, and it is one object of the gospel to raise us to that condition. Hence, our Savior's teaching, though it be eminently practical, is always evangelical. Even in expounding the law, he always has a gospel design. Two ends are served by his setting up a high standard of duty. On the one, he slays the self-righteousness, which claims to have kept the law by making men feel the impossibility of salvation by their own works. And on the other hand, he calls believers away from all content with the mere decencies of life and the routine of outward religion and stimulates them to seek after the highest degree of holiness, indeed, after that excellence of character which only his grace can give. This morning I trust that though I keep very much to practical points, I shall be guided by the spirit of holiness and shall not really be guilty of legality, nor will any of you be led into it. I shall not hold up the love of our neighbor as a condition of salvation, but as a fruit of it. I shall not speak of obedience to the law as the road to heaven, but I shall show you the pathway which is to be followed by the faith which works by love. Let us proceed to the parable at once. Point number one, our first observation will be that the world is very full of affliction. This story is but one among a thousand based upon an unhappy occurrence. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. He went upon a short journey and almost lost his life on the road. We are never secure from trouble. It meets us around the family hearth. It causes us to suffer in our own persons or in those of the dearest relatives. It walks into our shops and counting houses and tries us. And when we leave home, it becomes our fellow traveler and communes with us on the road. Frequently, the greater afflictions are not occasioned by the fault of the sufferer. Nobody could blame the poor Jew that when he was going down to Jericho about his business, the thieves beset him and demanded his money, and that when he had made some little resistance, they wounded him, stripped him, and left him half dead. How could he be blamed? It was to him a pure misfortune. Believe me, there is a great deal of sorrow in the world which does not arise out of the vice or folly of the persons enduring it. It comes from the hand of God upon the sufferer, not because he is a sinner above others, but for wise ends unknown to us. Now this is the kind of distress which, above all others, demands Christian sympathy, and the very kind which abounds in our hospitals. The man is not to blame for lying there beaten and bruised, Those gaping wounds from which his life is oozing are not of his own inflicting, nor received in the drunken brawl or through attempting a foolhardy feat. He suffers from no fault of his own, and therefore he has a pressing claim upon the benevolence of his fellow men. Still, very much distress is caused by the wickedness of others. The poor Jew on the road to Jericho was the victim of the thieves who wounded him and left him half dead. Man is man's worst enemy. If man were but tamed to peace, the wildest beast in the world would be subdued. And if evil were purged from men's hearts, the major part of the ills of life would cease at once. The drunkard's wastefulness and brutality, the proud man's scorn, the oppressor's cruelty, the slanderer's lie, the trickster's cheat, the heartless man's grinding of the faces of the poor, these put together are the roots of almost all the poisonous weeds which multiply upon the face of the earth to our shame and sorrow. If dominant sins could be taken away, as blessed be God they shall be when Christ has triumphed throughout the world, much of human sorrow would be assuaged. When we see innocent persons suffering as the result of the sin of others, our pity should be excited. How many there are of little children starving and pining in chronic disease through a father's drunkenness, which keeps the table bare, Wives, too, who work hard themselves are brought down to pining sickness and painful disease by the laziness and cruelty of those who should have cherished them. Work people, too, are often sorely oppressed in their wages and have to work themselves to death's door to earn a pittance. Those are the people who ought to have our sympathy when accident or disease bring them to the hospital gates, wounded and half dead. The man in the parable was quite helpless, He could do nothing for himself. There he must lie and die. Those huge wounds must bleed his very soul away unless a generous hand shall interfere. It is as much as he can do to groan. He cannot even dress his wounds, much less arise and seek shelter. He is bleeding to death among the pitiless rocks of the descent to Jericho, and he must leave his body to be fed upon by ravens and crows unless some friend shall come to his help. Now, When a man can help himself and does not, he deserves to suffer. When a man flings away opportunities by his idleness or self-indulgence, a measure of suffering ought to be permitted to him as a cure for his vices. But when persons are sick or injured and are unable to pay for the aid of the nurse and the physician, then is the time when true-hearted philanthropy should step in and do its best. So our Savior teaches us here. Also, certain paths of life are peculiarly subject to affliction. The way which led from Jerusalem to Jericho was always infested by robbers. Jerome tells us that it was called the bloody way on account of the frequent highway robberies and murders which were there committed. And it is not so long ago to be beyond the memory of man that an English traveler met his death on that road, while even very recent travelers tell us that they have been either threatened or actually attacked in that particularly gloomy region, the desert which goes down to the city of palm trees. And so also in the world around us there are paths of life which are highly dangerous and fearfully haunted by disease and accident. Years ago there were many trades in which from want of precaution, death slew its thousands. I thank God that sanitary and precautionary laws are better regarded and men's lives are thought to be somewhat more precious. Yet still there are ways of life which may each be called the bloody way, pursuits which are necessary to the community but highly dangerous to those who follow them. Our mines, our railways, and our seas show a terrible role of suffering and death. Long hours in ill-ventilated workrooms are accountable for thousands of lives, and so are stinted wages which prevent a sufficiency of food from being procured. Many a needlewoman's way of life is truly a path of blood. When I think of those multitudes of our working people in the city who have to live in close, unhealthy rooms, crowded together in lanes and courts, where the air is stagnant, I do not hesitate to say that much of the road which has been trodden by the poor of London is as much deserving of the name of the way of blood as the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. If they do not lose their money, it is because they never have it. If they do not fall among thieves... They fall among diseases which practically wound them and leave them half dead. Now, if you have not to engage in such avocations, if your pathway does not lead you from Jerusalem to Jericho, but takes you perhaps full often from Jerusalem to Bethany, where you can enjoy the sweetnesses of domestic love and the delights of Christian fellowship, you ought to be very thankful and be all the more ready to assist those who, for your sakes or for the benefit of society at large, have to follow the more dangerous roads of life. Do you not agree with me that such persons ought to be among the first to receive our Christian kindness? Such abound in our hospitals and elsewhere. Let that stand. It is clear that there is a great deal of affliction in the world, and much of it is the sort which deserves to be succored at once. Point number two. There are many who never relieve affliction. Our Savior tells us of two at least who passed by on the other side. And I suppose he might have prolonged the parable so as to have mentioned two dozen if he had chosen to do so. And even then, he might have been content to mention but one good Samaritan. For I hardly think that there is one good Samaritan to two heartless persons. I wish there were, but I fear the good Samaritans are very few in proportion to the number who act the part of the priest and the Levite. Now notice who the persons who were that refused to render aid to the man in distress. First, they were brought to the spot by God's providence on purpose to do so. What better thing could the Lord himself do for the poor man, half dead, than to bring some man to help him? An angel could not well have met the case. How should an angel, never wounded, understand binding up wounds and pouring in wine and oil? No, a man was wanted, who would know what was necessary, who would, with brotherly sympathy, cheer the mind while doctoring the body. In our English version, we read, By chance there came down a certain priest that way. But the learned Greek scholars read it by a coincidence. It was in the order of divine providence that a priest should come first to this afflicted person so that he might go and examine the case as a man of education and skill. And then, when the Levite came afterwards, he would be able to carry on what the priest began. And if one could not carry the poor man, the two might between them be able to bear him to the end. Or one might remain to guard him while the other ran for help. God brought them to this position, but they willfully refused the sacred duty which providence and humanity demanded of them. Now, you that are wealthy are sent into our city on purpose that you may have compassion upon the sick, the wounded, the poor, and the needy. God's intent in endowing any person with more substance than he needs is that he may have the pleasurable office, or rather, let me say, the delightful privilege of relieving want and woe. Alas, how many there are who consider that store which God has put into their hands on on purpose for the poor and needy to be only so much provision for their excessive luxury, a luxury which pampers them, but yields them neither benefit nor pleasure. Others dream that wealth is given them, that they may keep it under lock and key, cankering and corroding, breeding covetousness and care. Who dares roll a stone over the well's mouth, When thirst is raging all around. Who dares keep the bread from the women and the children who are ready to gnaw their own arms for hunger? Above all, who dares allow the sufferer to writhe in agony uncared for and the sick to pine into their graves unnursed? This is no small sin. It is a crime to be answered for to the judge when he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Those people who neglected the poor man were brought there on purpose to relieve him, even as you are. And yet, they passed by on the other side. There were both of them persons too who ought to have relieved him because they were very familiar with things which should have softened their hearts. If I understand the passage, the priest was coming down from Jerusalem. I've often wondered which way he was going, whether he was going up to the temple or was in a hurry to be in time for fear of keeping the congregation waiting, or whether he had fulfilled his duty and had finished his month's course at the temple and was going home. I conclude that he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho because it says, by chance there came down a certain priest that way. Now to the metropolis, it is always going up, going up to London or up to Jerusalem. And as this priest was coming down, he was going to Jericho. It was quite literally going down for Jericho lies very low. I conclude that he was going home to Jericho after having fulfilled his month's engagements in the temple, where he had been familiar with the worship of the Most High as near to God as man could be, serving amidst sacrifices and holy psalms and solemn prayers. And yet, he had not learned how to make a sacrifice himself. He had heard those prophetic words which say, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. But he was entirely forgetful of such teaching. He had often read that law, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But he regarded it not. The Levite had not been quite so closely engaged in the sanctuary as the priest, but he had taken his share in holy work, and yet he came away from it with a hard heart. This is a sad fact. They had been near to God but were not like Him. Dear people, You may spend Sabbath after after Sabbath in the worship of God, or what you think to be so, And you may behold Christ Jesus set forth visibly crucified among you, and themes which ought to turn a heart of stone to flesh may pass before your minds. And nevertheless, you may return into the world to be as miserly as ever, and to have as little feeling towards your fellow men as before. It ought not to be so. I beseech you, suffer it not to be so in any case again. These two persons, moreover, were bound by their profession to have helped this man. For though it was originally said of the high priest, yet I think it could be said of any priest that he was taken from among men that he might have compassion. If anywhere there should be compassion towards men, it should be in the heart of the priest, who has chosen to speak for God to men and for men to God. No stone should ever be found in his bosom. He should be gentle, generous-hearted, kindly, full of sympathy and tenderness. But this priest was not so, nor was the Levite who ought to have followed in his wake. And O oh, you Christian ministers and all you who teach in schools or who undertake any service of Christian ministry, and you are all to do so, for the Lord hath made all his people to be priests unto him. There ought to be in you from your very profession a readiness of heart towards the kindliest actions for those who need them. And there is one thing to be mentioned also against this priest and Levite, namely that they were very well aware of the man's condition. They came close to him and saw his state. It is a narrow trackway down to Jericho, and they were obliged to go almost over his wounded body. The first comer looked at him, but he hurried on. The second appears to have made a further investigation, to have had sufficient curiosity at any rate, to begin to examine the state of the case. But his curiosity being satisfied, his compassion was not aroused, and he hurried away. Half the neglect of the sick poor arises from not knowing that there are such cases. But many remain willfully in ignorance, and such ignorance is no available excuse. In the case of the hospitals for which we plead today, you do know that there are persons in them at this moment suffering, persons suffering grievously for no fault of their own, and you know that these need your aid. As I rode the other evening by what that noble building on our side of the water, St. Thomas's Hospital, I could not help meditating upon what a mass of pain and suffering was gathered within those walls. But then I thanked God that it was within those walls where succor would be most surely rendered to it, to the best of human ability. So you do know that there is poverty and sickness around you, and if you pass by on the other side, You will have looked at it, you will have known about it, and on your heads will be the criminality of having left the wounded man unhelped. Yet, the pair had capital excuses. Both the priest and the Levite had excellent reasons for neglecting the bleeding man. I never knew a man refused to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. I believe that there is not one man on earth who wickedly rejects the plea of need is not furnished with arguments that he is right arguments eminently satisfactory to himself and such as he thinks should silence those who press the case for instance the priest and the levite were both in a hurry the priest had been a month away at jerusalem from his wife and dear children and he naturally wanted to get home if he lingered the sun might be down it was an awkward place to be in after sundown and You could not expect him to be so imprudent as to stay in one lone place with darkness coming on. He had spent a very laborious month in the temple. You do not know how exhausting he had found it to act as a priest for a whole month. And if you did, you would not blame him for wanting to get home to enjoy the little rest. Besides, he had promised to be home at a certain hour and he was a man of punctuality and would by no means cause anxiety to his wife and children who would be looking from the housetop for him. A very excellent excuse was this. But he also felt that he really could not do much good. He did not understand surgery and could not bind up a wound to save his life. He he shrank from it. The very sight of blood turned his stomach and he could not bring himself to go near a person who was so frightfully mangled. If he did try to bind up a wound, he felt he should be sure to make a muddle of it. If his wife had been with him, she could have done it. Or if he had brought some plaster, liniment or strapping, he... Could have tried his best, but as it was, he could do nothing. Uh, The poor man, moreover, was evidently half dead and would be quite dead in an hour or two, and therefore is a pity to waste time on a hopeless case. Then the priest was only one person and could not be expected to carry a bleeding man, and yet it would be idle to begin the case and leave him there all night. True, he could almost hear the sound of Levite's feet. Indeed, he hoped he was coming up behind for he felt very nervous at being alone with such a case. But then that was all the more reason for leaving the matter, since the Levite would be sure to attend to it. Better still was the following line of excuse. You would not have a person stop in a place where another man had been half killed by thieves. The thieves might be back again, and they were scarcely yet out of hearing even then. And a priest after a month's service ought to have some fees in his purse, and it was important not to run the risk of losing the support of his family by stopping in a place which was evidently swarming with highwaymen. He might have been wounded too, and then there would be two people half dead, and one of them a very valuable clergyman. Really, philanthropy would suggest that you take care of yourself, as you could not possibly do any good to the poor man. And then the man might die, and the person found near the body might be charged with murder, it is always awkward to be found alone in the dark spot with the corpse of one who has evidently suffered from, from the foul play. The priest might be taken up upon suspicion. And did not all the principles of prudence suggest that the very best thing that he could do was to get out of the way as quickly as possible? Moreover, he could pray for the man, you know, and he was glad to find that he had a tract with him which he could leave near him. And what with the tract and the prayer what more could a good man be expected to do? With this pious reflection, he hastened on his way. It is just possible, also, that he did not wish to be defiled. A priest was too holy a person to meddle with wounds and bruises. Who would propose such a thing? He had come from Jerusalem in all the odor of sanctity, and he felt himself to be as holy as he could conveniently be, and therefore he would not expose such rare excellence to worldly influences by touching a sinner. All these powerful reasons put together made him content to save trouble and leave the doing of kindness to others. Now, this morning I shall leave you to make all the excuses you like about not helping the poor and aiding the hospitals, and when you have made them, they will be as good as those which I have set before you. You have smiled over what the priest might have said, But if you make any excuses for yourselves, whenever real need comes before you and you are able to relieve it, you need not smile over your excuses. The devil will do that. You had better cry over them. For there is the gravest reason for lamenting that your heart is hard toward your fellow creatures when they are sick or perhaps sick unto death. Point number three, the Samaritan is a model for those who do help the afflicted. He is a model first if we notice who the person was that he helped. The parable does not say so, but it implies that the wounded man was a Jew, and therefore the Samaritan was not of the same faith and order. The apostle says, As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Well, this man was not of the household of faith as far as the Samaritan's judgment went, but he was one of the all men. The Jew and he were as much apart in religious sympathy as they well could be. Aye, he was a man. Whether he was a Jew or not, he was a man, a wounded, bleeding, dying man. And the Samaritan was another man. And so one man felt for another man and came to his aid. Do not ask whether a sick man believes in the 39 Articles or the Westminster Assembly's Catechism. Let us hope that he is sound in the faith, but if he is not, His wounds need staunching just as much as if he held a perfect creed. You need not inquire whether he is a sound Calvinist, for an Armenian smarts when he is wounded. A churchman feels as much pain as a dissenter when his leg is broken, and an infidel needs nursing when he is crushed in an accident. It is as bad for a man to die with a heterodox creed as with the orthodox faith. Indeed, in some respects, it is far worse and therefore we should be doubly anxious for his cure. We are to relieve real distress, irrespective of creed, as the Samaritan did. Moreover, the Jews were great haters of the Samaritans, and no doubt the Samaritan might have thought, if I were in that man's case, he would not help me. He would pass me by and say, it is a Samaritan dog, let him be accursed. The Jews were accustomed to curse the Samaritans, but it did not occur to the good man to remember what the Jew would have said. He saw him bleeding, and he bound up his wounds. Our Savior has not given us for a golden rule, do to others as they would do to you, but as you would that they should do to you. The Samaritan went by that rule, and though he knew of the enmity in the Jewish mind, he felt that he must heap coals of fire upon the wounded man by loving help. Therefore, he went straight away to his relief. Perhaps at another time, the Jew would have put off the Samaritan and refused even to be touched by him. But the tender-hearted sympathizer does not think of that. The poor man is too sick to hold any crotchets or prejudices. And when the Samaritan bends over him and pours in the oil and wine, he wins a grateful glance from the son of Abraham. That poor, wounded man was one who could not repay him, He had been stripped of all that he had. Even his garments were taken from him. But charity does not look for payment, else were it no charity at all. The man was a total stranger, too. The Samaritan had not even seen him before. What did that matter? He was a man, and all men are kin. God hath made of one blood all nations that dwell upon the face of the earth. The Samaritan felt that touch of nature, which makes all men kin. And he bent over the stranger and relieved his pains. He might have said, Why should I help? He has been rejected by his own people. The priest and the Levi have left him. His first claim is upon his own countrymen. So have I known some to say, These persons have no claim. They ought to go to their own people. Well, suppose they have gone and failed. Now comes your turn. And what the Jew would not do for the Jew, let the Samaritan do, and he shall be blessed in the deed. He had been neglected neglected by the officials and neglected by the saints. The best, or those who ought to be the best, the priest and the Levite had deserted him and left him to die. The Samaritan is neither saint nor official, but yet he steps in to do the deed. O oh, Christian brethren, take care that you are not put to shame by this Samaritan. He is a model to us next in the spirit in which he did the work. He did it without asking questions. The man was in need. He was sure of that, and he helped him at once, doing so without hesitation, and making no compact or agreement with him, but at once proceeding to pour in the oil and wine. He did it without attempting to shift the labor from himself to others. Charity nowadays means that A asks B to help him, and B, in his wonderful charity, does him the great favor of sending him on to C. That is to say, the common run of benevolent persons nowadays put their hands but seldom into their own purses, but send people on to a few individuals who find cash for all. It seems to me to be a very mean way of getting rid of a case by saving your own pocket and passing the applicant on to another person who is no better off than yourself, but far more generous. The Samaritan was personally benevolent, and therein he is a mirror and model to us all. He did it without any selfish fear, The thieves might have been upon him, but he cared nothing for thieves when a life was in danger. Here is a man in want, and the man must be relieved. Thieves or no thieves, and he does it. He does it with self-denial, for he finds oil and wine and money at the inn and everything. Though he was by no means a rich man, for he gave two pence, a large sum than it looks, but still a small sum. He did not fling his alms about because he was rich. He is not said to have given a handful of pence but two, for he had to count his pence as he expended them. It was a poor Samaritan who did this rich and noble act. The poorest can help the poor. Even those who feel distressed themselves may manifest a generous Christian spirit and give their services. Let them do so as they have opportunity. This man helped his poor neighbor with great tenderness and care. He was like a mother to him. Everything was done with loving thought and with whatever of skill he possessed. He did the best he could. Brethren, let what we do for others always be done in the noblest style. Let us not treat the poor like dogs to whom we fling a bone, nor visit the sick like superior beings who feel that they are stooping down to inferiors when they enter their rooms. But in the sweet tenderness of real love, learned at Jesus' feet, let us imitate this good Samaritan. But what did he do? Well, First he came to where the sufferer was and put him into his position. Then he put forth all his skill for him and bound up his wounds, no doubt rending his own garment to get the bands with him which to bind up the wounds. He poured in oil and wine, the best healing mixture that he knew of, and one which he happened to have with him. He then set the sick man on his mule, and of course he had to walk himself. But this he did right cheerfully, supporting his poor patient as the mule Proceeded, He took him to an inn, but he did not leave him at the inn and say anybody will take care of him now. No, but he went to the manager of the establishment and gave him money and said, take care of him. I admire that little sentence because it is first written, he took care of him. And next he said, take care of him. What you do yourself, you may exhort other people to do. He said, I leave this poor man with you Pray, do not neglect him. There are a great many people in the inn, but take care of him. Is he a brother of yours? No, I never saw him before. Well, are you at all under obligation to him? No, well, yes, yes, I feel under obligation to everybody that is a man. If he wants help, I am obliged to help him. Is that all? Yes, but do take care of him. I feel a great interest in him. The Samaritan did not cease till he had gone through with this kindness. He said, This money may not be sufficient, for it may be a long time before he is able to move. That leg may not soon heal. That broken rib may need long rest. Do not hurry him away. Let him stop here. And if he incurs additional expense, I will be sure to pay it when I come back from Jerusalem again. There is nothing like the charity which endures even to the end. I wish I had time to enlarge on all these things, but I cannot do so. Exhibit them in your lives and you will best know what they mean. Go and do likewise each one of you and thus reproduce the good Samaritan. And finally, point number four, we have a higher model than even the Samaritan, our Lord Jesus Christ. I do not think that our divine Lord intended to teach anything about himself in this parable, except so far as he is himself the great exemplar of all goodness. He was answering the question, who is my neighbor? And he was not preaching about himself at all. There has been a great deal of straining of this parable to bring the Lord Jesus and everything about him into it, but this I dare not imitate. Yet by analogy, we may illustrate our Lord's goodness by it. This is a picture of a generous-hearted man who cares for the needy, but the most generous-hearted man that ever lived was the man of Nazareth and none ever cared for sick and suffering souls as he has done. Therefore, if we praise the good Samaritan, we should much more extol the blessed Savior, whom his enemies called a Samaritan, and who never denied the charge for what cared he if all the prejudice and scorn of men should vent itself on him. Now, brethren, our Lord Jesus Christ has done better than the good Samaritan because our case was worse. As I've already said, the wounded man could not blame himself for his sad estate. It was his misfortune, not his fault. But you and I are not only half-dead, but altogether dead in trespasses and sins, and we have brought many of our ills upon ourselves. The thieves that have stripped us are our own iniquities. The wounds which we bear have been inflicted by our own suicidal hand. We are not in opposition to Jesus Christ as the poor Jew was to the Samaritan from the mere force of prejudice, though we have been opposed to the Blessed Redeemer by nature. We have from the first turned away from Him. Alas, we have resisted and rejected Him. The poor man did not put his Samaritan friend away, but we have done so to our Lord. How many times have we refused almighty love? How often by unbelief have we pulled open the wounds which Christ has bound up? We have rejected the oil and wine which in the gospel He presents to us. We have spoken evil of Him to His face and have lived even for years in utter rejection of Him, And yet, in His infinite love, He has not given us up, but He has brought some of us into His church, where we rest as in an inn, feeding on what His bounty has provided. It was wondrous love which moved the Savior's heart when He found us in all our misery and bent over us to lift us out of it, though He knew that we were His enemies. The Samaritan was akin to the Jew because he was a man but our Lord Jesus was not originally akin to us by nature. He is God, infinitely above us. And if he was found in fashion as a man, it was because he chose to be so. If he journeyed this way via Bethlehem's manger down to the place of our sin and misery, it was because his infinite compassion brought him there. The Samaritan came to the wounded one because in the course of business he was led there and being there he helped the man. But Jesus came to earth on no business but that of saving us. And he was found in our flesh that he might have sympathy with us. In the very existence of the man, Christ Jesus, you see the noblest form of pity manifested. And being here, where we had fallen among robbers, he did not merely run risks of being attacked by thieves himself, but he was attacked by them. He was wounded, he was stripped, and not half dead was he, but altogether dead, for he was laid in the grave. He was slain for our sakes, for it was not possible for him to deliver us from the mischief which the thieves of sin had wrought upon us accepting by suffering that mischief in his own person. And he did suffer it, that he might deliver us. What the Samaritan gave to the poor man was generous, but it is not comparable to what the Lord Jesus has given us. He gave him wine and oil, but Jesus has given us his heart's blood to heal our wounds. He loved us and gave himself for us. The Samaritan lent himself with all his care and thoughtfulness, but Christ gave himself even to death for us. The Samaritan gave two pence, a large amount, out of his slender store. I do not depreciate the gift. But he that was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty, Might be rich. Oh, the marvelous gifts which Christ has bestowed upon us. Who is he that can reckon them? Heaven is among those blessings, but his own self is the chief boon. The Samaritan's compassion did but show itself for a short time. If he had to walk by the side of his mule, it would not be for many miles. But Christ walked by the side of us, dismounted from his glory all through his life. The Samaritan did not stop long at the inn, for he had his business to attend to, and he very rightly went about it. But our Lord remained with us for a lifetime, even till he rose to heaven. Yea, he is with us even now, always blessing the sons of men. When the Samaritan went away, he said, Whatsoever thou spendest, more I will repay thee. Jesus has gone up to heaven, and he has left behind him blessed promises of something to be done when he shall come again. He never forgets us. The good Samaritan, I dare say, thought very little of the Jew after years. Indeed, it is the mark of a generous spirit not to think much of what it has done. He went back to Samaria and minded his business and never told anybody, I helped a poor Jew on the road. Not he. But of necessity, our Lord Jesus acts differently. For because we have a constant need, He continues to care for us and His deed of love is being done and done and done again upon multitudes of cases and will always be repeated so long as there are men to be saved, a hell from which to escape and a heaven to win. I have thus set before you the highest example and I shall conclude when I have said two things. Judge yourselves, all you my hearers, if you are hoping for salvation by your own works. Look to what you must be throughout an entire life if your works are to save you. You must love God with all your heart and soul and strength and your neighbor in this Samaritan's fashion, even as yourself, and both of these without a single failure. Have you done this? Can you hope to do it perfectly? If not, why do you risk your souls in this frail skiff, this leaky, sinking craft of your poor works? For you will never get to heaven therein. Lastly, you who are Christ's people are saved and you are not going to do these things in order to save yourselves. The greater Samaritan has saved you. Jesus has redeemed you, brought you into his church, put you under the care of his ministers, bidden us to take care of you and promise to reward us if we do so in the day when he comes. Seek then to be true followers of your Lord by practical deeds of kindness and if you have been backward in your gifts to help either the temporal or the spiritual needs of men begin from this morning with generous hearts and god will bless you oh divine spirit help us all to be like jesus amen
1: Usually at this part of the show, after the sermon, you would hear something from Joel and, or myself, and we would give you a little thought that we put in there on the sermon. But today, I, I, we to just we really thought the interview went well, and I know you've heard Dr. Chang throughout this whole episode, but we're going to give you just one more piece from the interview, just one more thought to kind of leave you with this as you are heading, to, heading out of this episode.
2: Spurgeon, in many ways, if he were—I mean, I guess this is just conjecture, but my guess would be if he's living in 21st century America— uh, he's speaking a very similar message because we've, uh, you know, in many ways, we're not that different from, from the 19th century Victorian, right, living in London. Uh, we've figured out ways, even as Christians, to sort of separate ourselves from having to think about and see poverty around us. You know, the internet makes that a little bit more difficult. Uh, but still, you know, we, we, we make it, we sort of find creative ways to, to shelter ourselves from having to think about poverty. Um, we sort of excuse ourselves from having to deal with it. Spurgeon does a good job of um, <clears throat> emphasizing the, the preeminence of the gospel, the, the necessity of repentance and faith in Christ. And yet he connects that then with the need to, to, to follow Christ's example, right? To love those who are in need. And uh, I think in, in our day, there's been a, a good revival of sort of gospel-centered preaching, right? We want preaching that is not legalistic, that points us to Christ uh, and and calls people to, to trust in him. And yet, if we so emphasize that, that we no longer preach the imperatives of Christ, the Christian faith, uh, then I think we've lost something. You know, uh, Spurgeon in his day very much was dealing with a kind of antinomianism where People were so emphasizing kind of God's sovereign grace that that they were sort of forgetting the need for Christians now to to live as Christians. One of the things that he would do as people joined his church uh, in that membership interview would just be to ask them, "So how are you going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ?" And and part of that was how are you going to care for the poor around you. Um, Spurgeon very much understood that um, Christian service was, was part of the Christian life, right? Part of Christian discipleship. And yet at the same time, you know, there are also Christians who would so emphasize social care, social ministry that they would sort of downplay the role of the gospel. And that and, and Spurgeon would disagree with that also, right? You know, the, the only way we get to the point where we're giving ourselves for others with sacrificial love is as we come to know the love of Christ for ourselves. Right? And so, so the gospel and so kind of good works, they have to go together.
3: thank you for listening to today's episode of revived thoughts today's episode was narrated by dr chain the director of the spurgeon center Uh, you can find the spurgeon center on social media you can follow that to see all things spurgeon related also if you happen to find yourself in the kansas city area go visit it it's open to the public yep uh go check it out
1: And if you enjoyed this episode and thought it was edifying or growing or encouraging, we really just ask that you would share it with others. Either send it to a friend, maybe a personal message, someone you know you go to church with or Bible study, or you just thought that you know they're a Christian, you work with them, you think, hey, this, this might be something you find interesting, an old story. or. Uh, you know, you can share it on social media as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anywhere else that you social media at, whatever you're doing, please send them this link. Let them know about what we're doing here and what we're trying to do at Revived Studios with Revived Thoughts and Revived Devos and Revived Radio. And uh, we thank you so much for listening. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.